Praise God, praise God, praise God. We're going to be in Psalm 139. If you want to go ahead and start turning there. I love a line that was in that song, Defender, that you go out and win my victory before I even knew that you went to war. I just completely botched that line. The general concept is that God does things for us before we even realize that He's moved. He's already finished by the time we come to our realization. And that's kind of going to go along with the theme of today's message. Um, Today's message, I don't really do titles. Um, Every once in a while I will. But if you were going to put a title with this message, it's just simply, Search Me and Know Me, O God. Search me and know me, O God. Before I start, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, today when we come before You, I'm going to try to put forth an aspect of who You are, a thing that You continually accomplish and have repeatedly accomplished over and over and over again. Lord, I just ask that this psalm that this text, that these passages that we're going to go through today, I ask that it impacts them at least half as much as it has impacted me. Lord, the feeling that I get in the pit of my gut every time I read this psalm, Lord, I pray that you would just generate that feeling inside of them, that feeling of just awestruck wonder at who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 139, before we go into it and do a verse-by-verse breakdown and try to understand what the Lord is speaking to us or what the Holy Spirit's trying to convey to us this morning, I want to read it all the way through from start to finish. And I want to do it slowly, I want to do it prayerfully, and I want to do it with reverence. I want to try to feel the emphasis and the passion that the psalmist was feeling when he wrote it. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me such knowledge is too wonderful for me it is high i cannot attain it where shall i go from your spirit or where shall i flee from your presence if i ascend to heaven you are there if i make my bed in sheol or in hell you are there If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be not, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. If I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those that rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. When you read that, does that not just, and maybe it's just me being weird, but does that not just make a pit in the bottom of your stomach at the majesty of God? O Lord. Remember when we was going through Psalm or John in John 3.16, I said that we have this crazy outlandish tendency to skip over phrases like for God or oh Lord and we just jump past them to try to get to what the verse is saying. We cannot do that. And every time I come to a spot in Scripture, I'm going to make us stop and pause and just think about it. Oh Lord. He doesn't just say oh God or oh far off one, or oh high and lofty one. He says, oh Lord. And that has several implications, not just talking about the majesty and the grandeur and the holiness of God, but it literally says, oh Lord. It subjects himself. And he, in the very nature of what he's saying, says, you are my master. Oh Lord. Oh my Lord. My King, my God, the one that I surrender to, the one that I submit to. Oh Lord. You have searched me and known me. Normally when somebody says search something, they're implying that the person or the individual who's doing the searching doesn't already know. Like, I'm not going to search for my keys if I know where my keys are. I'm not going to search out the answer in a textbook if I already know what the answer is. So normally searching has the connotation of the person doing the searching doesn't have the understanding to begin with. But it's obvious, David makes it completely obvious that God already knows. The reason that he says, searched me, is because God is so intimately acquainted with our ways, so aware of who we are, that it's as if he led the most intricate and detailed search of every fiber of our being. You have searched me, and not only have you searched me, but you have known. Some manuscripts just say you have known, not you have known me, but when it's in that expression, you almost have to put the me and the personal aspect on it. Sure, you know everything, but you've known me. You've searched me and you've known me. That is both the most terrifying and the most comforting statement perhaps in the entire Bible. You have searched me and you have known me. The reason that it's terrifying is obvious because you know you. You know your thoughts, you know your actions, you know the words that you've said and the words that you haven't said when you're in a conversation with somebody and you're acting and smiling to their face and you're thinking all kinds of awful things in your head because they may be just that one person that grinds your gears for whatever reason. Men, you know every time that you've seen Miss Miniskirt in the mall and thought things that you shouldn't. 
women, you know every time you've seen somebody wearing something that they probably shouldn't be wearing. Or every time you've formed an opinion about somebody else's cooking or somebody else's spouse or somebody else, I cannot believe that she spent that much money on that dress and look how ugly it is. We know us. And God Almighty, the one who's never sinned, the one whose eyes cannot even behold or stand to behold iniquity, the one who is so other than, so holy, so righteous, so good, has searched every aspect of who you are and intimately knows you. Is that not terrifying? If I didn't know the character of God and how good He is, that would scare the Bee Gees out of me. <laughs> or as that expression, I don't even know where it came from, that would scare the pee diddle far out of me. That God knows us. Everything about us. But it's comforting in this sense. If God didn't perfectly know every wickedness that we've ever conceived, every negative thought, every bit of gossip, every bit of lust, every bit of anger, every violent image or unholy thought that's ever crossed the corridors of your mind, if He didn't know that, then He would not have the ability to offer you a perfect salvation. If He didn't know the extents of the depravity of humanity, He could not offer salvation to humanity. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Not only do you know me, you know my actions. You know my thoughts. You know where I'm going. You know where I'm stopping. You're acquainted. Some translations say you're intimately acquainted with all my ways. And it goes on, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. James says this, he says every kind of beast and bird and four-footed thing and serpents have all been tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. He goes on to say, Behold how great a matter a small fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, even as the tongue among our members, that it setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. Not only is the tongue something that no one and none of us have tamed completely. We all say things that we wish we hadn't. Lee and I were talking before service and he said, I feel like I can be real with you because we know each other. You know if I say something wrong that that's not what I meant. God knows us. Comforting and terrifying. If we misspeak, He knows the motivations of our heart. But if we speak according to those motivations and it's the motivations that are bad, from the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. He's still good and He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's rich in mercy and He's full of forgiveness. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. The actual manuscript and some of your, I don't know what the church Bibles look like, such is usually in italics because it's not actually there. We've added it in in the translation from the original Hebrew to Greek. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. What David actually says is knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
We don't have knowledge. We have fragments of knowledge, pieces of knowledge. And David realizes this and he says, knowledge in of itself is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. You know what true knowledge is, but I can't. I can't fathom it. I can't even begin to comprehend it because knowledge is something that is infinite. And in my finite, in my fallen, in my depraved state, I can't even begin to wrap my head around what real knowledge is. Anyway. Verses 1 through 6, the verses that we just went over that we just specified and broke down a little bit. I'm not going to do that with every verse through this psalm because that would take forever. And that's not really what I'm trying to do here. Verses 1 through 6 are hinting towards the omniscience of God, the all-knowingness of God. And then it gets in, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're waiting on me. If I make my bed in hell, your presence is there. We went over that all too well at the end of the John 3.16 series. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I was to catch the sunrise and let the speed of light transport me from coast to coast, you'd be waiting there on me. Jonah tried to flee from the presence of the Lord, and he ended up fleeing right into the presence of the Lord. Verses 7-12, through they're talking about the omnipresence of God, the all-presence this psalm is actually setting the stage for something. It's identifying three facets of who God is. Omnipresent, everywhere present at all times, the omniscience, the all-knowing, and then it gets into His creation and it's a hinting at His power, the omnipotence or the almighty all-power of God. It's three. It's setting the stage. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He can do anything. David ends the psalm the way that he started. He said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is so powerful because he's circular reasoning here. He starts out saying, You have searched and you have known. But then he goes and he ends the psalm the same way he started. He said, Search me. So it's the implication. You have searched me and you have known me, but continue to search me and continue to know me. And if you find any grievous thought in me, some translations say if you find any anxious thought in me, any worry thought, any stress thought, if you find any of that in me, remove it and lead me in the way everlasting. And we know from looking at this after the crucifixion that the way everlasting or the everlasting way is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So he's saying, search me as you have already done. Know me like you already do. Continue to reprove me. Continue to hone me. Continue to purify me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me into Jesus. Lead me in that path. Lead me into more of Him. Take me into the depths of Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. We're going to continue this. Lead me, take me into more of Jesus. Take me deeper into Jesus. I need more of Jesus. You know me. You know my thoughts. You know that I'm not completely conformed to the image of your Son. Continue to do that. Continue to work on me. Verse 25. See, 
in Psalm 139 when we went through those sections about the omnipresence, the omniscience, and the omnipotence of God, when we were looking at those three sections, we were realizing and identifying what God can do, what He's capable of. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, I want to show you what God will do. And there's a reason I picked this specific translation, and here it is. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious. Some translations, don't worry about your life. Don't stress about your life. You know what God can do. Sometimes Jesus in the Scripture repeatedly rebukes the disciples and says, you of little faith, or oh generation of little faith. Or when I come back, will I even find faith on the earth? If we just read in Psalm 139 what God can do, and we truly have faith that God is God, and that the Bible is true and it's the infallible Word of God, if we truly believe that, and we truly understand that God is everywhere, He knows everything and He can do anything, then why do we stress about our life? Why do we worry? Why do we get anxious? Why do we allow our thoughts to be consumed and what the passage is going to tell us not to be consumed with? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Those are some pretty necessary things, especially in our society. You can't starve and go around naked. You need food, and for some climates you need clothes. So you don't burn to death, so you don't freeze to death, so you don't starve to death. You need those things. This is not just talking about your lust, your wants. It's not talking about a brand new car. It's talking about things that you actually need for survival. And he's saying don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, I mean, they don't plant seed, they don't prepare gardens, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds every single one of them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, Yet I tell you, even Solomon, who is the richest king that has ever lived, Solomon was so rich that silver was cast out back and just considered like gravel. That's how much wealth Solomon had. Silver was worthless in his kingdom. Can you imagine having so much money that silver is worthless? He said, but even Solomon in all of his glory, with all his wealth, with all his riches, he was not even close to being arrayed like one of these. So if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, here it is, O you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those that do not know God, seek after all of these things and your heavenly father knows because remember he's omniscient he is all knowing that you need them but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you 
seek first the kingdom of God. See, it's not wrong to work and to provide for your family. It's not wrong to buy food. It's not wrong to buy clothes. It's not even wrong to buy nice clothes so that you look a certain way. That's not wrong. What's wrong is when we get distorted and we get our priorities out of order and we allow our desire for our food or our survival or even our clothes and what we're going to wear, we allow those things to take precedence over our relationship and our devotion to God. That's when we get out of order. If God is all-powerful, if He knows everything and He knows that we have need of these things, then when we start to concern ourselves and stress about our money and where we're at financially and what we're going to do and we allow that stress to take precedence and to take over and to separate us from God because that's ultimately what stress will do. It gets you looking inward instead of looking upward. Stress and anxiety and all these things are going to get you focused on your ability and what you can do. It's going to start looking at, well, maybe I can pick up some overtime. Or maybe I can do this. I can do this. And instead of looking at God's Word says God can do this. God can do this. If God can, and we look at Matthew 6, and we're beginning to see the heart of God, that you're worth more than the birds of the air. You're worth more than the sparrow. You're worth more than the birds that God continually continually provides for. And even if you buy the fanciest clothes, you're never going to have the beauty that a lily of the field has. And God clothes the grass. Then why do we constantly look at that? We look at all of our external circumstances and allow that to force an inward look so we begin to look more into who we are and what we can do and what we're capable of. And looking at external things and looking at the internal nature of who we are and our own capabilities, we have no room nor time left to look at who God is and what He will do and what He can do. Our anxiety and our stress and our worry separates us from God. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. King James says, sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. Tomorrow's got its own problems. We already said that God was everywhere. There's a very, very cliche expression, but it's one that has a lot of power. Don't worry about what tomorrow will hold, because God holds tomorrow. Don't worry about it. God's already there. He's already in tomorrow. Don't worry about it. And make the theme of this message a Bob Marley song. Don't worry. Be happy. I can't do the... (laughs) I can't do that portion. I'll have Faith come back up and sing it for you maybe. Just kidding. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what's going to happen to you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't let anxiety consume you. Psalm 139, God is omniscient. He knows everything. He's all-knowing. God is omnipresent. He's all everywhere. Everywhere present. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Matthew 6 begins to show us the fourth aspect of who God is. The fourfold being of God, if you would. He's omnibenevolent. He is all good. He is a good, good Father. We sing that song. There's probably 60% of churches across America have sang that song this morning. 
or will sing that song this morning. He's a good, good Father. He's a good God. God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. He is good. And if He is good, then you know what good will do. Good will provide for you. Good will take care of you. Good will make sure your needs are met. God is good. And everything that He does is filtered through that, that He's good. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. He's all-powerful. And He's all-good. So you know what He can do. Now you know what He will do. The question is, why? And we're going to go through our third passage of Scripture. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. I won't make you flip through the Bible that much. But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 if you're taking notes and want to write it down. Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to be in... I guess we'll start in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere... What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. I really like the King James translation of this passage better because in verse 9 it doesn't say, but we see Him. It says, but we see Jesus. And it doesn't do it any disrespect that they put the pronoun and they put the name of Jesus later. But it takes away some of the power, at least in my own mind and the way I'm reading it. Because you see all this stuff that's prescribed to man, the dominion that God gave man in the Garden of Eden. And it says, but we don't see these things yet. It says, but, but we see Jesus. And see, that's the why. An answer, God can do this. And we know that God can. And then we looked at Matthew 6 and we're more valuable to Him than the sparrows and the birds and the grass of the field. We're precious in His sight. He delivers us because He delight in it, because He delights in us. So we see from Matthew chapter six that He will. And the question is why. And the answer to the question of why is Jesus. Why? Because of Jesus. We don't see all these things yet. We see trouble in the world. We see depravity. We see wickedness. We see struggle. We see poverty. We see starvation. We see sickness. We see disease. We see all of these things. Why? Because the world is in a fallen state and corruption roams and people have free will and they make choices and they do things to us that we wish that they wouldn't and we suffer things because of the decisions and choices of others. And sometimes we suffer because of our own decisions. And sometimes we just suffer and we don't even have an explanation for it. But Romans chapter 8 says that everything works together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Everything works together for the good, even if we can't see the good. And we know that to be true because we just read that God is omnibenevolent. He's all good. Everything has to be filtered through that. It's good. Even if I don't see the good, I know it's there because the Bible tells me. And either I believe the Bible or I don't. And I can't pick and choose and say, I believe this portion and I want to accept this portion, but I don't want to acknowledge the fact that even this stuff that sucks still working for my good. God is good. And He's always good. And He's always been good. And there's a secret, spoiler alert, 
He's always going to be good because God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the reason? We see Jesus. Jesus is the reason. He's the answer. He's always the answer. The reason that God loves us? Because Jesus died for us. God looked at Himself and seen love and He cast that love onto something and someone, mainly a group of people, that were completely undeserving of that love. And He chose in His sovereign will before the foundation of the earth that He was going to offer Jesus for us. And so now when God looks at us, He sees us through the filter of Jesus. Sure, there's depravity. Sure, there's wickedness. Sure, there's sin. Sure, we fall short. But in Christ, we have hope. In Christ, we can see the goodness of God working for us. Because even if the goodness of God, we don't ever see it pan out in this life, maybe our life will be an effect and a causation for an effect in somebody else's life. There's countless stories, and I can't think of the guy's name to save my life, so I'm not going to try, but there was a missionary, and he was so dead set that it was the will of God for him to go to this tribe off the coast of South America, I believe. And he went, and he got off the boat, and he set foot on the beach, and he didn't even make it to the forest line, and they had already speared him to death and killed him. And they left him there as an example. You know what happened? His martyrdom encouraged his children to do it, and they went, and the entire tribe was one to Jesus. Hundreds of people were one to the kingdom because that man was sacrificed his life. Now, you might look at his circumstance before the tribe was one, and you might say, that did not work together for his good. But every one of those salvations are tied to his reward and glory because he sowed the seed. God is good. Even if we don't see it, God is good. That's right. God is great. God is great. But we see Jesus. Now here's here's the kicker. God knows us and still desires us. Like I said before when we started this, He's intimately searched every single one of our ways, knows every shortcoming, knows everything that we've ever done, every thought that we've ever crossed our mind, every word we've ever spoke, or every word that we've ever bit our tongue and caused our tongue to bleed so that we didn't say. He knows it all. And yet He still desires us. He still loves us. He still wants us. He still calls us. He still beckons us. He still says, Come to the well of life and drink the water of life freely. Come, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come, come, come. Repent and be saved. Escape the damnation that's laid before you. Escape it. Come. Constantly. Come, come, come. No matter what we face, God knows it. He's omniscient. No matter where we go, God's there. Omnipresent. No matter what struggle comes against us, God is more because He's omnipotent. He's more powerful. He's stronger. He can overcome. He can help us through that situation. No matter our struggle, if we would read on in Hebrews chapter 2, we'd look through the same things that Jesus, the things that Jesus went through. He became flesh so that He could be tempted in every way that we're tempted. Go on into Hebrews 4. He endured everything that we can endure. So no matter what our struggle, God's made it through it. He's endured it Himself. No matter what our need, God is good. And He will provide. He will answer it. He will meet it. I'm going to go to another passage of Scripture, and I know I'm jumping all over the place with you guys. I hope that you guys forgive me for taking you all through the Bible. But I really have one 
thing that I just want to push. Don't stress. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Have faith. Trust in God. The last scripture, if you're taking notes, is going to be 1 Peter 5, verse 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Here it is. Casting all your cares, all your anxieties, all your stress, all your worries, all your troubles, all your problems, casting all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Casting all of your cares on Him because He cares for you. Giving Him your stress. Giving Him your trouble. Giving Him your worry. Giving Him your anxiety. Give it all to Him because He cares for you. And then it goes on to say, it says, The devil, Satan, the destroyer, the accuser, walks around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Who is he trying to seek? Who is he devouring? The ones who won't cast their care on God. The one who's going to hold on to their stress, who's going to hold on to their anxiety, who's going to hold on to their worry, who's going to hold on to their trouble, who's going to hold on to their circumstance and saying, God, I can't give this to you. I have to try and figure out a solution. I have to try and fix it. I'm horrible because I can't let, if Faith has a problem and she's, she's upset about something, I can't leave her alone. I'm a man. I have to try and fix it. If something's wrong with one of my kids, I have to try and fix it. Sometimes as people, especially men, commonly have this hard drive that we can't let a situation go unfixed. We have to figure out a solution. We have to fix it. You don't. You don't. Sometimes just let go and let God. Because if not, and you want to hold on to your struggle and see what you can do, God won't move. Sometimes He may sovereignly do it, but that's the exception. The standard rule is, as long as you're working, God's going to rest. But the moment that you start resting and give your care and your trouble to Him, God will start working on your behalf. Let go and let God. Resist Him firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. Why does it repeat that? Because if you're holding on to your anxiety and you're stressed, then you're not firm in your faith. You're looking at you and not looking at God. You look at your circumstance, you look back at you, you look at your circumstance, you look back at you, and you're trying to see and measure yourself up. What about me can solve this problem? Nothing. Only God can. And if you do solve the problem, then it's only by the grace of God that you were able to do that. That's typically and standardly not going to be the rule. Typically, you're going to have to look at God and let God, and then God will give you something or empower something or edify something in you or even bring an external solution to the problem. Let go and let God. But the verse that I like, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. King James says, No temptation has taken you but such as common to man. 
You're not experiencing anything that no one else is. Your problem is not specifically created and designed by the devil just for you. What you're facing, 500,000 other Christians are facing. What you're experiencing, 500 people are experiencing it at the same time you are. Let go and let God. Don't worry. Don't stress. Have I, have I made my point clear? Is my point actually coming across? Do not stress. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Let go and let God. Why? Because God can, God will, and the reason that He can and the reason that He will is through the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. And finally, He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God is for you. And if God is for you, then who can be against you? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again and is seated on the right hand of the majesty on high, continually making intercession for you. If I haven't made my point clear, it's this. This is the application. This is the conclusion. Number one, don't stress. Number two, don't worry. Number three, don't be anxious. Number four, let it go. Cast your cares on Him because God cares from you. Through Christ, it will be accomplished and it will work together for your everlasting good because Christ is everlastingly good. Amen? Amen. Point been made? Is it clear? Praise God. God can and God will in Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray over this group of people right now I pray that every single fear, because stress and anxiety and worry, all that is a fear. And fear, as we know from Scripture, is nothing but a lack of love because those that have been made perfect in love have not fear because perfect love casts out fear. And if they don't have fear, then they won't have stress, they won't have anxiety, they won't have worry. So Lord, let all of those cares, just let them be compiled and cast upon You. Lord, when You took the weight of the world on Your shoulders upon the cross, that was supposed to be the weight of our hearts and minds. That stress, that heaviness that we get from stress and worry and anxiety, that weight, we have the ability to just cast it on You because You care for us. So God, number one, we're humbled by the fact that You love us so much. We're humbled by the fact that You care for us. When there is absolutely nothing, I can look inward at me and I can see that there is nothing about me that deserves or demands or even warrants Your love. But yet it's there. Your care for me is there. Your desire for me is there. And it's the same with everyone in this room. I don't know them to that extent, but I know that in them and of themselves, there is nothing that deserves, demands, or warrants Your love, yet You give it. Freely You give it. You care for them. Freely you care for them. Lord, let them understand that and let them know that if you can and you will because you are good and because Jesus is in us, let them cast those cares on you. Right now, if there's anyone that needs prayer for anything, you can come forward. I'd love to pray for you. I'll only linger just a moment. If anyone has stress and they want it gone, We'd love to lay hands on you. If 
not, then we'll close out the service. And God bless you all. Go in peace.